0: I was uh, rather amused at at the illustration that I selected to begin this this message because of the weather, the current weather. But I read about uh, an American Indian that was attending services one Sunday morning. And the sermon, the preacher got loud at times, but he didn't feel like it had a whole lot of substance to the message. And so he was asked when the sermon was over, if he had liked the sermon, his response was what you see. High wind, big thunder, no rain, no rain. And I thought that was, uh, God may have been trying to tell me to, sure, to bring the rain uh, tonight with the, with the weather. But I thought of this illustration as I was studying in 2 Peter chapter 2. And if you'll open your Bibles or look up Second Peter chapter 2. We're going to finish up or look at the last few verses of that, of that chapter. The whole chapter, Peter is addressing false teachers. And uh, not so much what they're teaching, but, but their methods and their, their motivation. But it's a, chap, a chapter-long denunciation of these false teachers. And I want to pick up in verse 17 and notice some things that Peter says about these false teachers. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. They are waterless springs. Imagine a traveler in the desert. And he's told that there's a spring ahead. And, and he's thirsty and longing for, for water. And he gets to this so-called spring and it's, there's no water available. They are like mists blown past by a squall of wind. Imagine a farmer whose crops are, are in desperate need of water, and there's a cloud in the distance, and he thinks, finally, uh, the rain is coming, but, but it's just a fine mist that a squall of wind just blows by, and so it, it doesn't water the crops. Peter's using this imagery to describe these faults. Teachers, They promised much, but they delivered nothing. And he speaks of their punishment here. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. The blackness of darkness. This is a description of hell. The complete absence of light. Utter darkness. Um, the parable of the talents. Jesus says, cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. This is that utter darkness. Again, complete absence of light. You can see from just this single text that Peter's denouncing these false teachers and, and talking about their, their doom. But notice what else he says in verse 18. For speak For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Notice that first phrase, speaking loud boasts of folly. Other translations say it like this. They speak great swelling words of emptiness. They speak, out of er- they speak arrogant words of no value. They mouth empty, boastful words. That's why I thought of dark clouds, loud thunder, but, but no rain. It seemed so in the same type of imagery that Peter is presenting here. But notice not only do they speak these empty words, and they may even speak them loudly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Again, it's not spelled out for us, but apparently these false teachers were teaching that it didn't matter what you did as Christians, that the grace of God would cover you so you could not so sin in such a way as to, as to be lost. So indulge yourself in the passions of the flesh seems to be their message. But notice at the end of this verse 18, their target audience. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. By the way, that word entice has the idea of a bait baiting to hook them James uses this same imagery each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed and then when desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death James is talking about the temptation process Peter's using this same idea to say that these false teachers they have loud words that are empty but their, their message is to entice you to engage in the, the, in the behavior that they're endorsing. And it causes them to, to be trapped and doomed themselves. But the target audience, the ones that they entice, are those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Peter's concern is for these new Christians, these new converts, Those who are new to the faith, who didn't have a strong understanding of the will of God. Those who are young and experienced in the faith are particularly susceptible to false teaching. And that's what Peter is, is addressing here. And that's why Paul would say we need to grow to spiritual maturity so that we'll be no longer... Infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. So Peter is, and Paul are echoing the same thing. We need to grow to maturity so that we won't be susceptible to these false ideas. And Peter is concerned about new Christians and their being uh, tempted by this false teaching. Verse 19, speaking of these false teachers, they promise them freedom, free to do as you'd like. It doesn't matter. Grace will cover you. They promise them freedom, but they, these false teachers themselves, are slaves of corruption. They promote this message of freedom, freedom to do just any way you want to. But behind the scenes in their own personal lives, they're slaves to corruption. Peter utters this truth by inspiration for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. I think addiction is is an illustration of what Peter is talking about. Whether it's drugs, alcohol, pornography, video games, gambling, there can be any number of things that people can be become slaves to but you can become slaves to sin Jesus says whoever commits sin is the slave to sin John 8 and verse 34 so this is the danger of this false teaching they're promising this freedom freedom to do whatever you want to God will forgive you God's grace will cover you but in their own lives they're slaves slaves to sin in the last few verses, the last three, three verses of 2 Peter 2, I've entitled it the, the Possibility of Apostasy. There are many who believe in the impossibility of apostasy. Let's define apostasy before we go any further. Merriam-Webster defines it like this. It's an act of refusing to continue to follow, o- obey, or recognize a religious faith. A second definition, abandonment of a previous loyalty or defection. There are some who teach or believe that the Bible teaches the impossibility of apostasy. That once you become a child of God, it's impossible for you to fall from grace. Once saved, always saved is a phrase that's used to coin that, that teaching. I believe the Bible does not teach the impossibility of of apostasy. And this is a clear text to me that teaches the possibility of apostasy. So notice with me in verse 20. For if they, or if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. First, we have to define they. Who is they? After they have escaped the defilements of the world and are again entangled in them. Who are they? Contextually, they could refer to these false teachers. It could also refer to those who follow the false teaching of of these false teachers. Perhaps these new converts that have taken what they're saying about being free to do whatever they want to and so engage in that behavior. I think they refers to both. Both the false teachers and those who succumb to the false teaching. But notice what it says. After they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How does that escape happen? When did that happen? When when did they escape the defilements of the world? I believe the Bible answer is when they obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll take you back to Acts 2 for a moment. Men and brethren, what shall we do? These Jews ask on Pentecost when they were told that they had crucified the very Son of God, that God had made this Jesus whom they crucified, both Lord and Christ. What shall we do? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit himself. With many other words, Acts 2 verse 40, they pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. How could they save themselves from this corrupt generation? By obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they obeyed the gospel, when they repented of their sins, confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior and were baptized into Christ, their sins were washed away. At the same time, they were committing themselves to following after Jesus and God had delivered them. They had escaped by the blood of Jesus, the defilements of the world. But notice Peter says, after they've done this, and then they become entangled again in them that is the defilements of the world, and are overcome, the last state is worse for them than the beginning. What's happened here? It refers to Christians, whether it's these false teachers or those who have abided by the false teaching. They have gone back into the world. They have discovered again for themselves that freedom doesn't mean free to do whatever you want. God's going to cover you. Freedom, is true freedom, is actually the ability to do all that God wants us to do. It doesn't mean do whatever you want to. It means freedom to do what God wants you to do. But they've swallowed this line of, of freedom means freedom to do whatever. And what they find is that when you practice that, you get trapped. You get entangled. You're overcome. You become a slave of sin yet again. Paul uses similar imagery. Galatians 6.1, brethren, talking to Christians. If a man is overtaken or caught in any trespass, think of the trap idea. They're enticed by this, by this, uh, this, by this sin. They're enticed by this temptation and they succumb to it. They're trapped. They're overtaken. If any any man is overtaken or caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. They're trapped. They're overtaken. They're lost, and they need help. They need spiritual brothers and sisters to, to go to them and seek to restore them with the right attitude, with the right aim. So Peter's talking about Christians who had once been delivered from the defilements of the world by the blood of Jesus and by their commitment to following Jesus. But they've gone back into the world. And they've gotten tangled up in the world. They're overcome with the slavery of sin again. They've departed from Jesus and gone back into the world. Notice Peter says of them, the last state has become worse for them than the first. The last state, having known the way of truth and gone back into the world, is in a worse state before they became Christians themselves. How is that the case? I can think of a few reasons. Because of eternal punishment. Another reason is because they know better. And a third reason is because it's often harder to repent ...and turn back to God in that state. But notice what else Peter says. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness... ...than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Please underscore that idea of turning back. They've known the way of truth. They've surrendered their lives in obedience to the gospel of Jesus... But they've turned back to the world, to living in the defilements of the world. I thought about Lot's wife, who was delivered. Lot and his family delivered from Sodom before the Lord sent fire and brimstone to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But you remember, Luke says, remember Lot's wife. What did she do? She turned back. Was it curiosity or was it a longing for the way of life in in Sodom. Nevertheless, she turned into a pillar of salt because she turned back. Peter is describing Christians who have not had a longing but have actually turned back to the world, to living in the world once again. And he uses this graphic language to describe their state. What, What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The last state has become worse than the first. This language describes the state of the soul that turns from Christ back to the pursuits of the flesh, back into the defilements of the world and are again overtank, uh, overcome by them. The reference to the sow, washing the sow, the pig, and returning to wallow in the mire can take us to Luke 15, which teaches this same truth. The son who wanted his inheritance early and received it and went and wasted it in riotous living and ended up in the pig pen. And what we learn from the parable of the prodigal son is that a child of God can be lost in the pig pen. But we also learn from this beautiful parable that prodigals can come home as he did in Jesus' story. You remember when he came home? You remember the words that the father said? Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was what? Lost. He was what? Lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Just as the prodigal was lost. Even so, Peter says, those Christians, whether they're false teachers or those who succumb to the false teaching, they are lost and their soul is in danger. And that's why he gives such strong words here in this chapter to to just uh, expose the methods and the message of these false teachers and to get people to understand that if you follow after them, your soul is in danger, you are lost, that it is possible to apostatize, it's possible to fall away, it's possible for the child of God. To fall from grace. I looked at my files under apostasy. And I found a short article by a preacher by the name of John Tracy. He entitled it Danger Signals of Apostasy. And he listed seven danger signals. If it's possible for a child of God to fall away. I know know that you and I both. We all don't want to even get anywhere near that. And so John Tracy identified some some signals, some warning signals that can lead us to fall away if we're not careful. And I'm including uh, in his article how to respond to these danger signals. Number one, a danger signal of apostasy is when you have a loss of appetite for the Word of God. John Tracy said it like this, When a Christian quits hungering and thirsting for the Word of God... Serious spiritual malnutrition can and will result. If we see this in our own lives, if we don't hunger and thirst for the word, that's a danger signal. And what's the response then? How about Peter's words? Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and all slander, and like newborn infants long or crave the pure spiritual milk that you may by it, grow into salvation. If, indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Crave. We know what babies do when they're hungry. Infants. They cry out. They crave that milk. Where they have that same longing, that same craving for the pure spiritual milk of God's word. And it causes us to grow. But we got to grow past the, the need for milk and get to the meat of God's Word, which takes us through to spiritual maturity. But a danger sign of apostasy is a loss of appetite for the Word of God. Number two, it's neglecting to engage in prayer. John Tracy said, Prayer, like physical exercise, requires a daily regimen marked by discipline and determination. If we find ourselves not availing ourselves of the blessing of prayer, It's a danger signal. What's the response then? Do you know this song? Pray in the morning, pray in the noontime, pray in the evening, pray anytime. Pray when you're happy, pray when in sorrow, pray when you're tempted, pray, pray all the time. Or as Paul says, pray without ceasing. I've been doing a lot of praying recently. Rick Whittle has been on my mind. And I wake up during the night and just say, God bless Rick and his family. Sometimes we don't have to be encouraged to pray when someone or some situation is near and dear to us. But folks, even when everything is going well, we need to continue to pray and include a lot of thanksgiving. But when we fail to pray, when we fail to take advantage of this tremendous blessing, it's a danger signal for us. Number three, absenteeism from worship assemblies. And yes, I know I'm speaking to the Sunday night crowd, but this is a danger signal. John Tracy says worship assemblies create a sense of brotherhood and encourage good works. What's the the response? Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need that encouragement from our brothers and sisters in Christ to continue to follow the Lord, continue to be faithful to Him. And we just cannot receive that encouragement if we don't meet with the saints. Absenteeism, you've seen it as well as I through the years. Some will start missing on Wednesday nights. Then they'll start missing on Sunday nights. Then they'll start missing on Sunday mornings. And sooner and as soon as that happens, we don't see them anymore. I've seen it, haven't you? And it's a failure to recognize the importance of us assembling together to encourage one another and so much the more as we see the day approaching. Number four, another warning signal is non-involvement with the local church. John Tracy says it like this, there is often a direct relationship between a person's involvement in the local program of work and his continued faithfulness as a Christian. A direct corollary. That's why Again, some ask, why do we put so much work into VBS? I'm proud of the work that we put into VBS. Because of what it does for for those who attend, the children especially. But it also gets a lot of people involved. And when people are involved in the work of the church, that is going to encourage them to remain faithful. So we need works like Vacation Bible School and Meals on Wheels and everything that will get us working together for the cause of the Lord. The response to this warning signal is to be a functioning member of the body of Christ. Romans 12, I won't read this whole text, but notice verses 4 and 5. As in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Let me go ahead and read the next part too. Here's some gifts. I believe these to be non-miraculous gifts. I believe these to be gifts that can be found in the current congregation. Which one or which ones do you have? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, that can be just teaching, preaching in proportion to our faith. If service, if you have the gift of being able to serve, Serve. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts or encourages in his exhortation. The one who contributes. Some are just have a generous nature. Use that gift in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Some just seem to have the gift of being able to see... Past the words of a person when asked, how are you doing? And they say, I'm fine. But their facial expressions, their eyes are telling you something else. If that's your gift of being sensitive to that, then use it with cheerfulness. Non-involvement is a warning signal. To counteract it, we need to be involved. Number five, and I added this one, Involvement in many other things. Not just non-involvement in the work of the church, but involvement in many, many other things outside. Observe what Jesus says about the thorny soil. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And what we see, sadly, are people, Christians, involved in so many other things that the word is choked out. They become weak. They sputter. Sometimes they even fall away. The response is something that we sang about. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Put that, Put that big rock in first in the jar of your life. Make sure you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Number six, another warning signal, is a critical spirit. A critical spirit. When I was a boy growing up in Stanton, Texas, we lived in the preacher's house, which was right next door to the church building. And because of the location, it was right next door we had worship first and then Bible class. My, my mom instructed me on some occasions to go to run home and check on the roast which was in the oven. I don't remember exactly, I'll have to ask her what I was supposed to do. I hope I remembered then when she told me to do it. It may have been to punch holes in the bag that the roast was in, but we often had roast on Sundays. I'm afraid. That some continue to have roast on Sundays, but it's not roast beef. It's roast preacher, a roast song leader, a roast elder, or roast teacher, a roast member on my pew. I remember WT pointing out a text years ago. Moses is recalling for the Israelites how after the Exodus they came to Kadesh Barnea, ready to enter the Promised Land. And he told them that God, he told them to take the land of the Amorites, for God had given them into his hand, but they refused. And notice what Moses says to them And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. And I remember vividly W.T. pointing out this idea of murmuring in the tents, murmuring in their homes. And the thing about murmuring in our homes, complaining, being critical of our brothers and sisters in Christ, is that God hears it. Not only that, there are other hearers who hear our complaining. There are little ears, if you have children at home, that hear our complaining. And if all they hear is criticism, how is that going to affect our and our family's view of the church? It's a danger signal. Some may hear so much complaining, so much negativity, but they. Say, so we don't need this. So being, having a critical spirit is a warning signal. What's the response? How about this? Stop complaining and start helping. Stop complaining and start helping. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, Paul says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Stop complaining. Start helping. Look for the good in others, not just the, not the bad. Pray for your... If you're going to talk to somebody about your preacher, your elders, your teachers, your fellow members, talk to God about them. Pray about them. Pray for them. And We need to learn to love others despite their imperfections. Because if you look around, including look, looking in the mirror, you're going to find imperfections. But if we focus on the imperfection, and that's all, we, that's all we do, that's a warning signal. As is number seven, finally, an absence of concern for others. John Tracy put it like this. One who is cold, insensitive, and is lacking in genuine love for others ought to be concerned that apostasy is not far away. So what does that look like? If my focus is only on me, what are they doing for me? What am I getting out of this? Self-centered is off-center. Our focus needs to be off of ourselves. And on to God and other people. If our focus, if we think we're the center of the universe, we're off center. We need to get out of ourselves. So what's the response? How about these? Love one another. As Jesus said, as I have loved you. And by this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. How about this? In love, let's serve one another. Do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And serving one another means that I put the needs of others above my own. And you can see how that's going to counteract this lack of concern for others. I'm going to be looking for the needs of my brothers and sisters and and actively seeking to help them in any way I can. And when we have a congregation full of that mindset, it's going to be thriving. It's going to be growing. It's going to be the proper focus. Because Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Some say it's impossible for a child of God to fall away. I say from the authority of God's word, it is possible for a child of God to fall away. Here's some warning signals. So if we find any of these to be in our own lives, let's respond appropriately. Stop complaining. Start helping. Let's be diligent about establishing set times for us to pray to God. And, and then pray at odd times as well. Let's, let's get back to a hunger for what does God have to say to us through his word. And let's not allow dust to settle on our Bibles. Or on our phone apps or whatever it may be. Apostasy in the words of Wayne Jackson, is a clear and ever-present danger. And like you, I want to stay away away from it as far as possible. I don't believe in once saved, always saved, nor do I believe once saved, barely saved. But I do believe that the Bible teaches there is a response that's required on our part. God will save. All we have to do is be faithful to him. That's why he gave us his word. That's why he gave us the church. That's why he gave us these warning signals to alert us that danger, that clear and present danger of apostasy. If tonight you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, if you have wandered away and want to come back home, that's the good news of the gospel, that we can come back home or if it's your desire tonight to put Christ on in baptism as a penitent believer, we'd love to assist you. And won't you come right now as we stand and sing?